Well, good morning to each one. I greet you in Jesus' name. I certainly enjoyed the Sunday school discussion. The book of Hebrews is is an interesting book. It wasn't written maybe exactly to us, but it was written to a people who were in transition. And I feel like we can learn a lot from it and uh, about our eternal high priest. So I was blessed with, uh, with the lesson again this morning. Sometimes when driving the highways, we see the sign, Road Under Construction. Well, the sermon I will be sharing today is a sermon under construction. And let me explain why. Earlier this year, I was asked to preach at Mabel Memorial in the month of August, and they assigned me the sermon title, Who is, Who is Your Bridegroom? Who is Your Bridegroom? So I've done quite a bit of thinking about this title, because for me in sermon preparation, the title is often one of the last things that gets added to the sermon. And so studying for a sermon that in the end will need to match the title perfectly has been a bit of a stretch. And so uh, I'm working on this sermon, but I'll share what I have put together so far today. And so I wonder what, what comes to your mind with a sermon entitled, who is your bridegroom? And I'll have to confess, I struggled with this title because it's not really a Dan Martin title, um, but I'm doing the best I can with it, so bear with me. But I thought we would begin by thinking a bit about the bridegroom and the bride. In the Bible, the word bridegroom is often used as a metaphor for God, particularly Jesus Christ. In Mark 2, 18 and 19, Jesus referred to himself as the bridegroom when he talked about why his disciples did not fast. Likewise, in John 3, 29, John the Baptist presented himself as the bridegroom's friend and declared that the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The church of Jesus Christ is likened to a bride with Christ as her bridegroom. The bride of Christ consists of the entire body of believers throughout the ages. It is all who have received salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Many years before Jesus came to the earth, the bride of Christ revelation began to unfold. The prophet Hosea prophesied in Hosea 2, 19 and 20, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. John the Revelator in Revelation 2 or 21, 2, saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down 
out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So that is just a brief introduction to Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride. You may be familiar with the hymn, Jesus is Standing in Pilate's Hall. And as I studied for this message, several lines from this hymn has been ringing in my head. If you're familiar with that hymn, the first two lines of the chorus goes like this. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. And those two lines is basically today's sermon in a nutshell. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. We understand neutral, don't we? If you're in neutral, you can't be there because nothing's happening, right? So what will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. So the question I have been assigned is, who is your bridegroom? Now, I haven't found this question in the Bible, but I have found very similar questions and I want to take you to several of those passages where ordinary people, like you and I, are faced with a life situation that calls for a choice. A choice to stand for God in truth or to do otherwise. And so we will begin in Exodus chapter 32, and you may want to turn there. I'll be kind of going down through the chapter, telling you what happened, and Read in a few verses along. But in this passage, we have the question, who is on the Lord's side? And the verse I want to eventually show you is verse 26. But first, let's look at what is happening in this passage. Moses has been gone from the camp for 40 days. He is spending time with God. And verse 1 through 4 gives us a picture of what is happening in his absence. So I will read 32, Exodus 32, 1 through 4. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that should go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so that's the setting of this passage. In verse 7 and 8, God tells Moses what is happening. Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Verse 9 and 10, God is angry. He said, I'm angry with these people and I'm going to consume them. 
Verse 11 through 13, Moses pleaded with the Lord to not destroy the people. Verse 14, the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Verse 19, Moses arrives at camp. He sees the people dancing and worshiping the calf. First, God is angry with the people. Now Moses' anger burns hot. In his anger, he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Verse 20, he took the calf which they had made, burned it with fire and ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. Verse 21 through 25, Moses confronts Aaron, and Aaron begins to make excuses. What was I to do? You weren't coming back. You know how these people are set on evil. And now we come to verse 26, the verse I want to show you. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. Can you see Moses shouting out the words, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. You see, in coming to Moses, the people would be making a choice to be on the Lord's side. And so we see the sons of Levi that came and stood by Moses. Did other folks follow their example and said, we too are on the Lord's side? Count us in? It doesn't really say. But think about, but think about it. Think what was happening here. The camp is on an emotional high. A new golden calf idol. An altar is set before it. A new exciting way to worship. Verse 16, or verse 6, they were so excited they couldn't even sleep. They rose early in the morning and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. That doesn't sound too bad, but then it all falls apart. And the people sat down to eat and drank. And that word drank there has the thought of drunkenness and rose up to play, which is a tasteful way to speak of gross sexual immorality. And now picture Moses in the middle of all this, stepping up and saying, who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. With these words, do you think a hush fell out over the people? Or were the people so intoxicated with strong drink and lust that his words made no sense? With what happens in the following verses, it would seem like the people could not think through the seriousness of their sin. Let's read 27 and 28. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out of the, from entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people 
fell that day. I don't understand this killing process, but in this case, siding with the Lord meant siding against some of the people. Why only 3,000 killed? Surely there was more that had sinned. Maybe these were the group instigators. We don't really know. However it was, I see two very important truths in this story. And those truths are simply, there must be a separation between those who are on the Lord's side and those who worship their own gods and their own ideas and their own thoughts. Moses wanted more from the people than just a verbal response. He wanted more than just a raise of hands. What he needed was folks to stand up and separate themselves from the evil around them. So that's the first truth that I see. And number two, there is safety on the Lord's side. Those who chose to stand along Moses, alongside of Moses, they were safe. They were safe spiritually, and they were safe from spiritual harm. There is safety on the Lord's side. That is the second lesson I see in this account. And you know, we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school today. When the children of Israel, when they followed the law, when they were obedient to God, they were safe. The nations around them feared them when they were obedient to God. You see, there is safety on the Lord's side. I believe Moses' question here in Exodus 32 has stood the test of time. And I believe it's a question that we should consider. I believe it's a question our world should consider. Who is on the Lord's side? Is that me? Is that you? Is that us? Let's go to another example. Again, another lesson from the Hebrew people. You can turn to Joshua chapter 24. Again, I will be telling you about what's happening and also reading a verse or two as we go. Joshua chapter 24. The people in this passage were dealing with change. Joshua, the faithful leader, was getting up in age, and because of his age, someone else would eventually need to take his place. And so we find Joshua sharing some last words of encouragement to the people. The first 13 verses of the chapter Joshua recites past history, history of God's faithfulness to his people. Verse 14 and 15, he challenges the people to choose whom you will serve. And I will read those two verses, Joshua 24, 14 and 15. Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth. 
and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua says, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Like I said, change was coming to the people of Israel. And as much as we shy away from change, it is a part of life. It said that nothing endures but change and how true that is. How do we deal with the changing scenes of life? How do we stay focused and committed to the Lord? The lesson I see in this passage is the value of choosing this day whom we will serve. I'm thinking here of a daily choosing this day who I will serve. In the morning, I awake and choose on this day to serve the Lord. It's my daily focus. It's my everyday early morning ritual, choosing this day whom I will serve. And I believe this is powerful because when the fear of change grips our minds and begins to cripple us and get us down, we can say to that fear, no, I have chose this day to serve the Lord. You can say to that fear, the God I serve is on the throne. He controls the universe. He's my provider. He's my healer. He's my avenger. He's my way maker. Psalm 18 verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength, and whom I will trust, my buckler, and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. This is the God I have chose this day to serve. He is my bridegroom, and I am his bride. Yes, the change you are dealing with will still be there. The change will still be real. But when you have chosen this day to serve the Lord, you will be empowered to face that change. I love the people's response in verse 16 through 18. Listen to what they say back to, to Joshua. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land, 
we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And I believe Joshua's words too have stood the test of time. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. What a powerful weapon to face the ever-changing scenes of life. So, let's go now to 1 Kings 18. You can turn there again if you like. Again, I'll be telling you the story and reading some verses along. The question we have in this passage is in verse 21, and that's what I want to eventually get to. Elijah raises the question, how long will you falter between two opinions? Now in this passage, we find the story of Elijah's victory on Mount Carmel. The land is in a remarkable three and a half year drought due to the fervent prayer of Elijah. And so if you can imagine, nerves were on edge, people were hungry, there was a great famine. Earlier, God told Elijah to hide himself, and now in this passage, God said, go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. And so if you move down to verse 17, Elijah and Ahab finally meet. First Kings 18, verse 17. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me, on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. And so, at this time in the history of Israel, idol worship has gained popularity in the land. Jezebel's ultimate goal was to dethrone the God of Israel and make the God of Baal the God that she worshipped, the God who is to be worshipped by all. And currently, eating at her table is 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Now, these false prophets and what happened to them is not my focus today. But what I want us to think about the children of Israel who witnessed this great victory. It's interesting that Ahab sent for the children of Israel, and it's hard to know why he did this. He actually carried out the instructions 
of Elijah. Perhaps he hoped that the people would be so angry with Elijah for the last three and a half year, years of drought that they would all turn against him. Or maybe Ahab was seeing that the people were slowly turning from worshiping the God of Israel to worshiping Baal. However it was, Ahab believed it would be to Baal's advantage for all the children of Israel together at Mount Carmel. And I tried to go and research possibly how many people that would have been. I don't know. But you know, so often when I have looked at that story in the past, my focus is on Elijah and the prophets, you know, gathered around there. But it says, all of the children of Israel. Folks, that was a tremendous number of people. And I believe Ahab made that happen because he thought it would be the clincher that from here on, all people would serve the God of Baal. But as the story unfolds, as the story unfolds, it, it soon becomes obvious that many had turned to worshiping Baal. And you know how they cut themselves and carried on and made a real fool of themselves. But, but yes, there was some who were definitely worshiping Baal. But apparently there was quite a few that were kind of in the middle. Because we have verse 21. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. The ancient Hebrew word translated falter means to limp, halt, hop, dance, or leap. Falter, I believe, is an interesting word because the word is a metaphor taken from the birds. It has the thought of hopping about from branch to branch, not knowing on which to settle. And so Elijah is saying, how long will you hop? How long will you dance between two branches? See, they understood that from the word, Hebrew word, that he used. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. How long will you dance? How long will you hop between these two opinions? It says, the people answered him not a word. There was no objection and there was no repentance. It seems as though they lacked the courage to either defend their position or to change it. And I believe Elijah could so accurately see into their hearts because he could see their actions. And so the two lessons I want for us to take from this passage is, number one, Elijah made it clear to this huge mountain crowd that there was a difference between serving Baal and serving the Lord God. 
And perhaps in the minds of many of the people, they had got to the place that they thought there really was not that great of a difference. I mean, maybe to some, maybe the only important thing was to have some kind of religion and to be sincere about that. You know, the mentality that all roads will eventually lead to God. Well, Elijah knew that it could not be both ways. You either serve Baal or you serve the Lord God of Israel. You see, back to that hymn, neutral you cannot be. That's what uh, Elijah was saying. Neutral you cannot be. So that's the first lesson. There is a difference between serving God, the Lord God of Israel, and Baal. And then the second thing I see here is Elijah called his hearers to account for the period of time in which they had not made a decision between the Lord God and Baal. How long, he asked them, how long will you dance? How long will you be in that condition of being in the middle of not knowing which way you will go? Let me share with you the words of Charles Spurgeon. And this was written back in the 1800s, and I'll read it like he wrote it. How long will you falter? How many more sermons do you want? How many more Sundays must roll away wasted? How many warnings? How many sicknesses? How many tollings of the bell to warn you that you must die? How many graves must, you, must be dug for your family before you will be impressed? How many plagues and pestilence must ravage this city before you will turn to the God, turn to God in truth. How long halt ye between two opinions? Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus is saying, we follow what captivates our hearts. What has captivated our hearts, we will love. It's that simple. Also, Jesus is saying, opposing masters demand different things and lead down different paths. A choice must be made. Who will be your bridegroom? What will it take to convince you who should be your bridegroom? How long will you falter between God's way and the way that seems right unto man? Well, in closing, and I'm still working on my closing thoughts, and I might just drop off here kind of abrupt after a bit, but that's where it is. So, <laughs> Jesus left his father's home in heaven and traveled to the home of his prospective bride to purchase her for a price, which was ultimate, ultimately his own blood. Peter writes 
in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spots, and without spot. The bridegroom loved his bride and gave himself for her, not with gifts overlaid with gold or silver, like a typical bridegroom would give, but with his own precious blood. We like gifts. Gifts are nice. But the gift of giving oneself to another is the best gift that can ever be given. Christ gave all of himself, even his own blood. This, my friends, is a divine love story between God the Father, his son Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. If you are not part of this divine love story, you may be wondering, well, how do I become part of the bride of Christ? How do I get in on this? John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever, that's all of us, the whole world, believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When we by faith believe and receive the bridegroom as my Savior and have consented to the match, you see, consent to the match, the bride and the bridegroom. Actually, the bridegroom and the bride, we become part of this beautiful relationship of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and we who believe in him, the bride. And if that isn't enough, we are then giving, given one more gift, the priceless token of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so that's how we get in on this. That's how we become part of this love story. In this beautiful relationship, all the cards are on the table. There is no dark corners. There is no locked drawers. There's no big secrets. God knows everything. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. Jesus is my bridegroom, and I am his bride. I love the word pictures of the hymn, I Come to the Garden Alone. And I'll read just a bit of that. But think about this relationship as I read. Think of this relationship of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and we, his bride. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. 
and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Folks, there is nothing in the world more beautiful than the close relationship between Jesus, the bridegroom, and we, his bride. And all, my last thing that I'll say today, and I probably should add more to this, but if you are not in this relationship of love and blessing today, you are missing out. We'll call for a closing song.